access to the western part of Nordsjælland is either from the Thule airbase, but this is a little too far south. Otherwise, you could get in if you could get access via a Canadian military station called Alert on Ellesmi Island. Welcome to Polar Podcasts, where you'll hear stories from geologists who've spent their careers, their lives, exploring and studying the remarkable and remote geology of Greenland. Why did they become fascinated with Greenland? What were the problems and the discoveries that drove them? And what was it like working in these remote places, where few people venture, even now? I'm Julie Holtz. In this episode, we hear more from Niels Henriksen, Emeritus Senior Scientist at the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland, about geological mapping in remote Western North Greenland in the mid-1980s. When GGU had finished the work in eastern part of North Greenland, there was a big region to the west of that which was also going to be covered in our 1 to 500,000 scale mapping. There all the logistics were more or less being a continuation of what we already have done in the Pearland region. So we organized ourselves with establishing a new tent base camp which was placed in a land area called Varmeland. From there you could cover the whole part of western North Greenland and close the open gap we had between what we knew already from Pearland and to what was known in the northern part of West Greenland, the Tule region. When we started there in 1984, we were in a situation where we already had all the topographical mapping finished. The Geodetical Institute had finished all their ground control point measurements. Our aerial photo interpretation could be continued with the man who did that internally here in GGU. His name is Hans Jebsen. He did continue his interpretation in such a way that all the geologists who worked in this part of western North Greenland were given a topographical map, which was a scale 1 to 100,000 map with a contour course of about 25 meters. And at the same time as they got the topographical map, they got a photo interpretation made by Hans Jebsen. So a lot of the features which were usually made by the field geologists in the field were already at hand because he had done a fantastic work in the photographical instruments in-house. We had to work with lower Paleozoic stratigraphy. That is, sedimentary rocks formed between about 540 and 420 million years ago. Lower Paleozoic biology with lots of fossils and all different fossil groups. Therefore, we had specialists involved, specialists in various fossil groups, people who knows about trilobites. Trilobites are an extinct form of arthropod a phylum that includes insects, spiders, crabs and centipedes. Trilobites lived in the oceans for almost 300 million years before they became extinct about 250 million years ago. They are the ones to ask if you want to know know about the stratigraphy in the Cambrian, for instance. You had gastropods. Gastropods are a large class of shelled organisms that include snails. You had trilobites, you had mosses, and there was lots of different groups of paleontologists involved. The East group had their own speciality, and they know their stratigraphy in such a way. If they have a fossil in their hand, they, they can tell the age of it very precisely. Down to where you have detailed stratigraphy all through the Paleozoic, with, I think, more than 100 different stratigraphical levels. 
This means that the paleontologists are able to finally subdivide the sedimentary rocks into distinct layers based on the fossils they find in each, which tell them exactly their relative sequence of formation through geological time. Of course, this has to be also registered in the mapping. They don't do this in detail in the fields, but they do it after coming back. You have fossil groups, which are fossils in mega size, where you can more or less observe the situation in the field, because you have the fossils in your hand, and you have the microfossils. You have to take samples home and prepare them in the laboratory, evaluating fossil groups and ages. It's exactly the same you do in, in the field. If you work with microfossils, then you have to take samples at home. A man who is working with microfossils takes samples every five, ten, 10 meters up through a section and take samples in the size of about one to three, four kilos with them from each level, depending on how fine you want to do your details up through a section. Then getting back in the laboratory, then he dissolved the big samples he had taken home with him, and then he started to look at fossil content in a binocular microscope. And with his special knowledge, I able to say that this is from level so-and-so and having this in this age. So it's a combination of what you observe in the field and what are the output of the laboratory work you are doing after coming back. So you have one field season with preliminary sampling, preliminary observations. Then you take your material with you back to the laboratory. During the winter, you in the laboratory can have all the details sorted out by dissolving the samples and looking at the microfossils. Then you know exactly which levels you think you have. Then you can go back and you can take more samples if that's necessary. Then you know something about which you have the full coverage or whether you have holes in between where you have to get more information. You have approximately 150 million years is represented in that sequence. In the western part of North Greenland, there we had to organize ourselves logistically in a little different way than in the Pearland region. Access to the western part of North Greenland is either from the Thule airbase, but this is a little too far south. Otherwise, you could get in if you could get access via a Canadian military station called Alert on the northernmost part of the island called Ellesmere Island. To obtain possibility to use this Canadian military station, we had to establish contact with the Canadian authorities first on a foreign ministry level and later on the direct level contact to the Canadian military. So I was involved in writing notes which were presented to the foreign minister first and then they got in contact with the Canadian authorities. Then it ended up with that I was going to Toronto and Ottawa to have meetings with the Canadian forces headquarter people and then it ended up with accept that we could get in and use this Canadian a military base called Alert, which was only one hour's flying distance from where we wanted to establish our base camp in North Greenland. We got a situation with the Canadians which were very fortunate for us. They were very cooperative. We got them to get all our fuel into their fuel tanks at Alert. We had to bring in the fuel ourselves with our Danish C-130 flights. We simply supplemented the fuel system in Alert with what was taken out for our needs. So we got a very flexible system where we could 
have the heavy aircraft to do the flight between Tula and Alert, and then we could use our own twin order to bring fuel in from Alert to Northern Greenland. And then we established a tent base, which was exactly the same as in the eastern part of North Greenland in Pierland. We had tents which were established for a period of nearly two months. After the summer, all the tents were taken back and packed and stayed in the field until next year, and then we opened the camp again. We had support by the Twinora, a small stall aircraft. STOL, S-T-O-L, is an acronym for short takeoff and landing. We had two helicopters there all the time, and we flew up to 500 helicopter hours in the season with these two helicopters. That was a fantastic amount of support. But of course, we had a flying distance from the central parts, from our base camp until the first way uh, camps, which was one and a half flying hour with a helicopter. So that was quite far away. Therefore, we had to establish a lot of small fuel depots around in the field, which was laid out with the twin order. Then the helicopters could fly into the fuel depots and fuel when they are out in the area close to the camps where they were going to do reconnaissance for the geologists or shifting camps. In the base camp we had situation working-wise with the two helicopters being stationed. They are going out from the base camp every morning and returning every evening. Sometimes they were staying overnight out in the field, but this was planned on beforehand. Sometimes they could stay overnight near to one of the serious huts, which are placed various places around in all of North Greenland. The huts established and maintained by the Sirius Patrol, the Danish military patrol in north and northeast Greenland. All the flight operations we had, both with the twin order and with the helicopters, were followed by our own small radio station, the way we have been working with helicopters both in northeast Greenland and in North Greenland. At that time, there was no radio possibility with Sønderstrømfjord. The American military base and international airport in West Greenland, now known by its Greenlandic name, There was no satellite connections, for instance, so we had to be in direct HF connection with helicopters all the time, which meant that we have a radio operator sitting in uh, our radio hut from whenever you started in the morning. We had a routine with this radio connection with all the teams. Every morning at 8 o'clock we had a contact with all the teams, and then we started flying something like half past 8 in the morning. The helicopters and the auto twin order were in contact with the radio operator with intervals of 20 minutes. Every time you had flown 20 minutes, that you had to report back to the radio station and give you a position. We had prepared maps divided into squares, so every time you shifted position, or at least every 20 minutes, you reported back to the radio operator which square you were in. It could be X, two letters and two ciphers. This was simply to have a security for all the operations. Also with the teams, we had a security system built up that any time their radio was open, then of course the teams could contact us if there was any problems. Otherwise, we had a routine contact with all the teams every night at 8 o'clock in the evening. Or if some of the teams had decided to stay awake for a longer period, maybe because it was bad weather in the morning and good weather in the afternoon, then teams decided that they want to work out later in the evening. And simply they gave us information about this, and then we knew that they were okay, and then they reported in the next morning of course but anyway the security was such that we always had 
good contact with the teams at least two times in every 24 hours. And the same thing with, with the aircraft, but there the security was much higher, and then they had to report every 20 minutes. In the season of 1984, we had a visit of our minister for Greenland. He came simply to get an impression of how we worked with our geological investigations. And at the same time, he was very much interested in making a political point out of visiting an island which is in the middle between Greenland and Canada. This island is called Hadsø. We should arrange that he should visit this island. He brought with him a flag. Danish flag, which was positioned in the middle of the island, simply to mark to the Canadians that this was a Danish island. <laughs> Hans Island, or Hans U in Danish, and Tartupalak in Greenlandic, is a tiny island less than one kilometre in diameter that lies exactly midway between Arctic Canada and northwest Greenland. That was a little problematic because the island was so far away from our base camp that it had more or less to be organized as a special thing. But he insisted that he wanted to visit this island, so we did so. I heard later on that the Canadian visited the island and put a Canadian flag (laughs) at the place where he had previously put a Danish flag. And we built a small cairn and put a bottle of whiskey or cognac in the cairn. So now we have marked that Hans Island is Danish, but there's still there has been a controversy about who owes this island. It's exactly in the middle between. Therefore, the authorities now they have reached a conclusion between them that you draw a borderline in the middle between the two countries, just in the middle of the sea. Then when the borderline meets the Hans Island, the borderline stops and then continues to the north of the island again in the middle between the two areas in the sea, but there's no borderline on Hansø. <laughs> this has to be decided later on. <laughs> I'm Julie Hollis, and you've been listening to Polar Podcasts. In the next episode, we hear more from Emeritus Senior Scientist Bjorn Thomason about working at the Black Angel Lead Zinc Mine in central West Greenland.